So welcome everybody to our quarterly podcast. I hope you and your families are all keeping safe and well. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business at Rothschild & Co. And I'm joined virtually this time, but as usual, by Kevin Gardner, our global strategist, and Hugo Capelcure, one of our co-heads of portfolio management. We're seeking to deliver to you two things, long-term returns above inflation and protecting your portfolios in the event of a major correction. And I thought I might just take a moment to reiterate some of the assertions that we make around what to expect from us, principally as regards service and performance. So firstly, I wanted to reassure you that whilst we're all working from home, as per government advice, everything is operating as normal. Our phones are forwarded to mobiles and I've seen the bills, so I know that we're talking to you. Our technology is robust and we're able to trade and act on your behalf as normal, whatever that means these days. We have sought to be transparent and proactive and will continue to do that. From a performance perspective, there are three key things I wanted to highlight. Returns can be lumpy in the short term, that we'll seek to reduce drawdowns and that we take a different approach. So lumpy returns, you're all experiencing that. So whilst we had a very strong year last year, we have given up performance this year, as you would expect. Reducing drawdowns, we expect volatility, but I trust as Hugo talks about how the portfolios are behaving in this period, you'll take comfort that we have so far limited the drawdowns. And we take a different approach, building portfolios with return and diversifying assets, rather than the classic asset allocation approach, and that we will invest with conviction. So what started out as another strong quarter quickly turned around in March as COVID-19 began to take hold in Europe. Kevin, looking back to the beginning of the quarter, how has the virus changed our expectations? Well, I think what we've just seen has been the fastest collective reappraisal of the economic outlook I can ever remember seeing. Because in just a few short days in March, it became very clear that governments really were going to intervene aggressively to stop the spread of COVID-19. And effectively, they've closed a big chunk of the global economy down. Now, stock markets have responded very rapidly to that, as we might have anticipated. And having hit an all-time high as recently as February the 19th, the US stock market subsequently fell into the fastest ever bear market, defined in terms of a drop from its high of 20%. And what strikes me about the global stock market response been that there have been really very few hiding places. Some regions and sectors did better than others, but most regions and most sectors were down heavily by perhaps a quarter or thereabouts. Indeed, at one point, the overall market was down by a third. So corporate bonds also did badly, not as badly as stocks, but their prices did fall, their spreads have widened up, and their liquidity has effectively dried. That's something, luckily, that the stock market hasn't had to contend with. The stock market remains pretty liquid, even in crises. But uh, corporate bonds have struggled to deliver liquidity. Uh, the only assets that have done pretty well have been uh, the best quality government bonds. And we've seen US and UK bond yields falling to new all-time lows as the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have cut interest rates. And gold has done reasonably well, but in a pretty volatile fashion. It initially fell before before rallying. Currency-wise, the dollar has been the strongest and the pound has been the weakest. And that uh, latter effect has helped to shield some UK-based portfolios from the worst of the damage, as uh, Hugo will, uh, will mention. And of course, oil prices have fallen very, very sharply. 
and for those tracking Bitcoin, you'll have seen it lose half its value before bouncing a little towards the end of the, uh, the quarter. Cash, of course, which we don't often talk about, but with low inflation staying very low and inflation expectations staying pretty low, cash, of course, has functioned as a nominal store of value. And in real terms, too, it's promising to continue to act as a bit of a safe haven alongside those uh, higher quality government bonds. But while markets have been falling sharply and economies have been closing down, we have seen a wave of measures from central banks and treasury ministries, finance ministries across the world, effectively intervening to try and provide support both to markets and to hard-pressed companies and consumers. I think it's important to keep in mind though that what they're doing, though it's unprecedented in scale and speed, what they're doing really should be seen as effectively palliative measures only because what they're not trying to do is to prevent completely an economic downturn from occurring. They, they can't do that and they, they're not really trying to because an interruption to the economy is exactly what governments want to engineer to try to stop the virus from spreading. So what the central banks like the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are really doing is they're trying to minimize the long-term damage that might be done by this short-term economic setback. And as I say, they have acted quickly and dramatically. We've seen interest rate cuts on both sides of the Atlantic. We've seen open-ended quantitative easing introduced on both sides of the Atlantic. And we've seen the Federal Reserve as part of that process planning to lend directly to companies through the bond market for the first time ever. It usually lends directly to banks, but it's making its lender of last resort facility effectively available through its interventions in the corporate bond market in the US. So we are seeing some pretty dramatic central bank and finance ministry uh, moves. Monetary and fiscal policy is, is acting in a palliative way, and that may help to stabilize market sentiment. But what it won't do, of course, what it can't do and is not designed to do is to avoid the economic bad news which is coming down the road at us. Because a big chunk of the global economy has been closed and until it's reopened, we're going to see some very weak economic data. The issue for us as investors is not so much the weakness in that data, it's a safe bet. It will be pretty pronounced. We'll see some indicators at levels that we've not often, if ever, seen before. The issue is how long it lasts. And on that front, for me, um, I think still I'm inclined to see the likely time horizon as being one of weeks rather than months and quarters. I mention that because I do still read accounts in, in the media and I've seen some government spokespeople suggesting that things like lockdowns could last for six months and longer. Um, I think that's, uh, that's unlikely at the moment, not because I have any epidemiological expertise. Of course, I don't nor do I have a crystal ball, but I have two reasons for thinking that the time horizon might be a relatively shorter scale one. The first is that the spread of the virus in China has already fallen back markedly to the extent that we can believe the data and the WHO are not disputing them significantly at the moment, but to the extent that we can believe the data, contagion has slowed there and that's allowed the Chinese authorities to loosen up on their controls and the economy slowly uh, is getting back to, uh, to business. Italy is uh, the most advanced of the European countries in terms of dealing with the, the virus. Things seem to be slowing down tentatively there. The UK is a few weeks behind Italy and the US in turn is a few weeks behind the UK. But it does feel as if, if that Chinese time horizon is the one to be following, that we should be anticipating the contagion slowing down, passing the inflection point in the weeks 
immediately ahead. And as that happens, governments here, as in China, may feel able to loosen controls a little. But the second reason for feeling that uh, the time horizon is likely to be shorter rather than longer is simply the sheer scale of the damage being done by the measures tackling the spread of the virus. Closing down a big chunk of the economy is not costless, not just in a material sense, but in a humanitarian sense also. People will be worse off than they otherwise would be, and healthcare will be worse than it otherwise would be. And I don't know whether the public mood will sustain this sort of lockdown for very much longer than weeks. And in particular, I doubt very much that it's sustainable for maybe six months or thereabouts. So if, as investors, we're looking at a relatively short-lived disruption, we should go back to those longer-term outlooks that we try to, to focus on and ask ourselves, has the global corporate sector really lost roughly a quarter of its long-term value as a result of this crisis? And my guess is that uh, markets, as often happens, probably with more justification this time around than, than often, uh, but as often happens, I think markets are probably overreacting to the undoubted bad news which is out there. And from a top-down perspective, I'd still be inclined to use this setback, very big setback admittedly, as an opportunity to be hunting for longer-term opportunities, bargains, rather than uh, an opportunity to be selling into it. Hugo, I talked at the beginning about us being able to operate as normally as possible. I just wanted to check in with you. How is that working for the investment team? I mean, you generally are used to sitting next to each other. That is certainly true. But uh, one of the four portfolio managers, uh, Michel van der Speck, he's actually based in Zurich. So uh, we had already got into the, um, into the habit of communicating a lot with him via video conferences and a lot of these other apps like the Blue Jeans and Zooms. So, in a sense, we'd already been, been running on that model for a couple of years. Good to know. So, just to remind us, and it seems like a bit of a lifetime ago now, what was happening before COVID-19 became a household name? Yes, uh, it, it does seem like a long time ago. So, pre-virus, uh, markets were having a good year. So, really following on from a strong uh, 2019. Corporate profits were progressing nicely. In fact, we just sold some Ryanair shares following a very strong rally in the stock. So the background was very good, but this virus has changed everything. And given the extreme volatility that we've seen, Hugo, so far this year anyway, how, how are the portfolios holding up? Well, there are a couple of provisos here. Firstly, prices are moving very rapidly in markets at the moment. So performance can be materially different day to day. And secondly, we try to get the most up-to-date possible prices for third-party funds, but, but even so, some of these only price weekly, so there can be some lags in, in the data. Uh, so just given those two provisos, balance portfolios are down around 11-12% for the quarter, with relative currency strength providing the differentiating feature between those denominated in sterling dollars and uh, euros. So we estimate portfolios are down some 11% in sterling, 12% uh, in euros and uh, dollars. So we've all talked a lot in the past about the return asset side of the portfolio being there to be the long-term driver of performance and deliver those returns ahead of inflation, and that the diversifying side of the portfolio is there to cushion the impact of a major market fall and to reduce the drawdowns. So we've definitely seen a major market fall. How much of the diversifying assets protected and, and what are the drivers of performance? Well. 
as I said in our year-end podcast, and it, it does seem that more than three months ago, I wasn't discouraged by the underperformance of the diversifying assets. And in, in most cases, you don't want your insurance to perform well, and we'd much rather see strong equity markets. However, this year, as Kevin has said, has been a very tough one for, for markets, and the diversifiers have really come into their, um, into their own. The level of protection differs a little for different portfolio structures. Some are slightly more constrained as to what they can hold. But overall, diversifiers have contributed around 4%. So around uh, 25 to 30% of the market fall has been offset so far. And how does that compare? I know you run simulations. You know, obviously, we stress test the portfolio. It wouldn't necessarily be for this particular event because uh, we didn't, you know, we wouldn't have predicted it. But when you look at those simulations, how's, how's what's actually happened compared against that? In the modeling um, exercises, the stress tests that we've conducted over the past few years, we've aimed to maintain levels of protection to cover around 20 to 25 percent of the portfolio's equity exposure. And that was in the event of a 30% market drawdown. And so the impact so far at around 25 to 30% has been slightly higher than we had anticipated. So is that all judgment, Hugo, or is there a bit of luck involved? Well, Napoleon is famously quoted, I actually checked it, it's actually misquoted as saying, give me lucky generals. And yes, there was a bit of luck involved. And it was, it was helpful that the last put option purchase of the March 2021 Euro stocks put uh, that was bought in February happened pretty much the very last day before the market started to roll over. So there was definitely an element of luck there, but also we were we were following broader strategies, so partly judgment as well. So just a reminder, the push options are there as, as direct protection against falls in equity markets. Back to our house insurance analogy, which I think many clients have heard us talk about in the in the past. So um, when we go back to the diversifiers again and just thinking about how we think about diversifying the diversifiers, how have the different parts of the diversifying side of the portfolio been performing? So the most immediate response has come from the explicit uh, protection, in other words, the uh, put options and also the Acura fund. These were propelled higher by both positions moving into the money and also by the increase in market volatility, which feeds into the prices of these options. So in the case of the puts, they started the year as tiny positions, but they've increased in value by multiples. And so they've actually cumulatively had a big impact. And the Acura fund has gone up by nearly 150%. For portfolios that don't own Acura, we have a higher weighting in, in the put options. And so the overall protection so far has been similar. So most of the offset has come from that part. The trend followers haven't done a great deal so far. We haven't really seen the trends develop yet because that does take a bit of time. And the high quality bonds and the cash have acted as a buffer. Yeah, as, as Kevin said, with the cash, right? I guess the, the question that we always get asked is, you know, what about monetizing, i.e. selling the diversifying assets? I mean, in a way, if not now, then when would you ever sell them? I guess is a question that we, uh, you know, we undoubtedly will get asked by our clients. Well, it's a question we are being asked by everybody at the moment. And as you said earlier, our mandate for most of our clients covers both growing assets over the long run and protecting portfolio values during major corrections, such as where we find ourselves today. 
given that we, the portfolio managers, we've been focusing on retaining balance in the portfolio, so trying to find the optimal spot between those two objectives. What we know for sure is that looking back in a few months, we'll have either been too aggressive or too cautious. We just don't know which one of those applies today. So when we look at the portfolios, we look at them in the round. In other words, we evaluate both the risk and return at portfolio level. What the puts and the other diversifiers have done is reduce the aggregate exposure to the return assets, the equities, in portfolios by around 10%. And so our priority has been to gradually add to some of the key holdings, the equity holdings, at what we think will prove to be very attractive level in a year or two's time. And we think that this will be the key driver of future portfolio returns. So we've topped up seven equity holdings so far and also bought back into the Lansdowne Developed Markets Long Only Fund. And for a balanced portfolios, these purchases have totaled around 5.5%. And we really view this as similar in its overall effect to monetizing the puts. But we've also sold the March 2020 S&P put as that was close to expiry, and we sold a part of the June 2020 S&P put as well. And in the case of the Acura Fund, they've also booked some profits on some of their equity options. And the remaining puts, we, well, we're continuing to um, review them. And they're still there as protection, of course, because we don't know what markets will do from here. Are there any stocks that you're really worried about? I mean, the transport sector's ground to a halt. Um, you know, where does that leave Ryanair, for example? We've compartmentalized all of the portfolio holdings into three groups for our own internal analysis, which we've uh, described as, you know, the first group as eye of the storm and the second group in the storm, and then the third group, which is less impacted. And in all cases, we've been reviewing the balance sheets of the companies and we've been speaking to company managements and to our network of industry experts. But our biggest focus and where our analyst team have been spending most of their time has been on that first group, the ones right at the front line of the virus where their businesses have stopped almost overnight. So in this group, we have Ryanair, as you mentioned, so no planes are flying at the moment. We have Ashtid because uh, the equipment hire sector is heavily impacted. Middleby, which does catering equipment. A lot of uh, restaurants uh, around the world are closed and the two banks, Lloyds and Wells. And we've really been focused on how exposures to these kinds of companies could lead to impairments and, and loan losses. In most cases for these companies, and certainly for the other stocks held in, in the portfolios, this further work has given us comfort that the companies can survive without going to their lenders or raising further equity capital beyond the end of the year. So, if we take Ryanair as an example, I mean, the aviation space is brutal at the moment, and we've never seen a shutdown quite like this before. However, in that context, Ryanair is the best capitalized airline in Europe with 4 billion euros of cash on their balance sheet. In part, this was a war chest that they had built up to buy a massive order of new Boeing 737 MAX planes, which was then delayed because of problems with the 737 MAX. So we very much view Ryanair as the last man standing of the European airlines. And actually, it's very well set up to withstand many months without uh, flying. Um, it al almost seems like a, the wrong question, Hugo, but are there any companies 
that we hold that are actually going to do well given the current situation? I don't think it's the wrong question at all, and, and we've been and we've been looking at this as well. And yes, there are. And we we've really been thinking of this in terms of short term and long term impacts. So in terms of the short term, so one example is the U.S. cable companies. Uh, they're doing very well at the moment. Aside from food, the other one vital for human existence at the moment, apart from medical supplies, seems to be broadband internet. And we had a conversation with the CFO of Cable One a couple of days ago, and he said that they were struggling to keep up with demand from new customers and that other customers were upgrading their data packages. And then I suppose with people working at home and families all trying to watch Netflix and stream things on the Internet, the amount of bandwidth that's being demanded is tremendous at the moment. So that's uh, good news for Cable One, and it'll certainly help the high-speed internet businesses of Charter and Comcast as well. Other than that, I mean, another one, anecdotally, we've heard from Linda, the industrial gases company, that their hospital gases business is very busy for understandable reasons. But they're also doing everything they can to help infected patients with at-home um, gas solutions as well. And then longer term, there are some potentially interesting impacts as well. So we think that this will trigger further consolidation in several industries, particularly at the front line of the current crisis, such as aviation. In fact, we, we felt that the European aviation space was going to consolidate even before this virus, but this could accelerate the process. For a company like Ashford, for example, you know, perhaps we will see massive uh, fiscal spending by governments on construction projects to boost the economy. So perhaps we'll hear Boris uh, announce high speed two, three, four, five, and so on. And that could mean a lot of rental equipment. And finally, another thing we've been uh, debating around the investment desk is a bank. So there are a lot of new lending models and fintechs that have never seen a recession. We feel that these could really struggle and they probably don't have the experience or the capabilities to work through uh, bad debts. So, Hugo, surely the tech giants are well-placed. I mean, their businesses are largely online. Are you looking at those? Yes, well, we are. And, um, you know, a number of these are businesses that we consider to be great franchise that we'd love to buy, but we've been deterred from, from the high valuations in the past. And actually, most of them, uh, most of the share prices for the likes of Amazon or Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft have held up pretty well so far. But they are major index constituents. And in fact, they're the biggest uh, stocks in, in the indices. So if we see another big leg down in markets, this could trigger a lot of index and ETF uh, selling. So this could finally give us the chance to buy some of these at prices that we think will translate into very attractive board returns. So we're looking at the businesses now, but we, we aren't quite at the moment of, of pulling the uh, trigger. So in a broader question there, how are we taking advantage of new opportunities that are arising? There are a few things that we are doing. So the first is just within the portfolio, we're doing some portfolio rebalancing. So we're looking to resize some of the portfolio holding, some of the weightings where they've diverged from our expectation of forward returns. The second thing is, is really in terms of research effort and what we are prioritizing. As I've just said, there are some companies, some, some great franchises that we've looked at admiringly for a few years where we'd felt that they were too expensive. And, and this is definitely now changing. So we're looking at some of those businesses. 
And we've also been in close contact with the external fund managers on, on both sides of the portfolio. And they've been very busy as well. They're essentially seeing opportunities across the whole asset class spectrum. So they're seeing opportunities in stocks. But also, uh, for example, for the trend followers, they're seeing opportunities in credit and currencies, uh, commodities and um, so on. So it sounds there's quite a lot of paddling going on beneath the surface. And so hopefully there'll be more for us to talk about on that front soon. It's interesting that the Asian markets have held up relatively better than the US or Europe. You know, firstly, why do you think that is? And secondly, you know, how Cedarberg, the Vander Fund, which invests in China, held up? Yes, I mean, that is that is a bit of a mystery. And we've been speaking a lot to to the Asian managers. So the Vander Fund, managed by Cedarberg, so Dawid Krieger and his team, is the best, well, the least worst performing of the equity funds we hold so far this year. Our latest estimate is it's down around 6% for the year. Speaking to them, some of the share prices of stocks such as the restaurant chain Heidi Lau are pretty much flat this year, which is actually pretty surprising given that all of Heidi Lau's restaurants have been closed for many weeks now. One of the theories, uh, speaking to Dao, is, is that the Chinese government, via insurance companies and banks, potentially other state-owned enterprises, have been intervening in the market, but, but we don't know for sure. Other Asian markets have been hit a bit harder. So Albeats here and Ward Ferry fund prices are off more. Albeats is down about 20%, Ward Ferry about 10%. And that's because other markets such as uh, the Southeast Asian markets and India have been hit harder. So Kevin also talked briefly about currency and the strength of the dollar. You know, Sterling's been very weak. What are your views on that? Yes, so we've been keeping um, a very close eye on, on currencies. The pound fell to just above 1.14 against the dollar in the middle of March and has subsequently rebounded to the low 120s, so about 123 as I speak. And just the context, um, 1.14 was the lowest level for over 30 years, uh, lower than the post-Brexit vote lows. It's also been weak against other currencies such as the euro. And our view is the, is the portfolio managers, which is really backed up by uh, Kevin and Victor's analysis, is, is that the pound is, is uh, looking oversold. So should we see it retest those lows and go closer to parity against the dollar, then we'll probably look to hedge some dollars back into pounds. However, we do acknowledge that we're living in unusual times, and so we aren't in a hurry to act. And really, the converse applies uh, for a dollar and euro mandates. So for those, we have some uh, sterling hedges on, which we'll look to fully take off should we see further currency dislocations. It's probably worth also mentioning that the trend followers at this point, so they're beginning to latch on to these emerging currency trends, and they're currently long the dollar against other currencies. Okay, so lots to think about there. Thank you very much, Hugo. Coming back to the two core strands of our approach, I think you know, delivering long-term returns above inflation and then protecting the portfolios in the event of a major correction, I think it's fair to say that it is possible that should we see share prices at sort of once-in-a-generation type levels, then we would look to increase the return asset weightings. I think, is that fair, Hugo? I think that's definitely fair because I think that that could set us up very, very well to deliver some strong returns over a multi-year period. So if we take the last few years where the weighting of the return assets in portfolios has been in the range of sort of 60 to 70 percent, 
I think if we saw exceptional opportunities, then we, you know, we could definitely see that going into the 70s and possibly higher, higher than that. I'm also very mindful that long-term relationships are often strengthened at times of adversity. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, um, please do ask. I've had a number of conversations with clients who have had cash flow needs for their own businesses, where we've been able to assist with lending against their portfolios. Whatever the question is, we're very happy to be um, a sounding board. Our podcasts we've got into the 21st century are now available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please subscribe to receive the podcasts as they're released. Thank you very much for listening. I wish you and your families well and stay safe. Thank you. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only, and any reliance on the information provided in it is done at your own risk. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the fairness or accuracy of it. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance.